Good morning, church. This past week marked the uh, end of summer break for us in the Loudermilk household uh, as my oldest son Elijah and my middle son Luke started school. And and so because of that, there were a number of tears this week. Tears from my boys because of the altered sleep schedule and expectation. Um, Tears from my wife, Victoria, because she saw her number two, Luke, head off to kindergarten for the first time. And then there were tears for me, but it was a different kind of tears. Um, <laughs> there were more tears of thankfulness for an incredible summer, an incredible summer, and also the fact that summer is not eternal, right? <laughs> and that the rhythm and the structure of school is back. And so as we enter this new school year, I, I thought it'd be a good time to kind of start off by pausing and saying, where are we at? Just asking the question, where are we at in our study on the Gospel of Luke? We studied, or we started our series in the Gospel of Luke about a year ago. And we picked the Gospel of Luke for a number of reasons, but the, probably the main reason we picked Luke is because of the four Gospels, it is the most comprehensive look at the life of Christ. It goes all the way from John, the baptism, excuse me, the birth of John the Baptist, all the way through the ascension of Christ after the resurrection. And so we felt like that's a great place to go to get that comprehensive look at this life of our Savior. Luke was probably the second or the third gospel that was written. And it's the longest, it's the longest book in the New Testament. And it's part of a, a two-part series that Luke writes, with part two being the book of Acts. And Luke is also described, it's known as one of the synoptic gospels, synoptic. It just means to, to see together. Okay, because if you look at Matthew and Mark and Luke, there's quite a bit of overlap between those three gospels. So they call them the synoptic gospel. You can find about half of Luke in Mark and or Matthew. But the most unique aspect of Luke's gospel is the part that we are currently in. It's chapters 9 through 19 of Luke that scholars call the travelogue. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning in this amazing chapter, one of the great chapters in all of Scripture, Luke chapter 15. And Luke chapter 15 is a series of three parables by Jesus. And the first parable is the parable of the shepherd who seeks after the lost sheep. The second parable is about a woman who looks for a lost coin. And the third parable is Jesus' probably his most famous parable of them all, which is the story of the prodigal son. And in all three cases, here's what's being highlighted. I mean, if you think about what we've talked about the last couple of months, it's been some heavy teaching, right? I mean, Jesus has been talking to people about the cost of discipleship. Like, if you don't hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister and your child, you have no place or no part of me. Like a high call to discipleship. Jason preached the sermon a month or two ago, and the title was literally, Repent or Perish. Like, repent or die. There it is. So it's been some heavy teaching, and in chapter 15, he wants to make clear through these parables, he wants to give us a glimpse into the heart of God. The heart of God. And what we're going to see is that God, has, he, he loves and seeks after the lost sinner. And when that lost sinner turns to Christ in faith through repentance, there is rejoicing, that God rejoices 
at the sight of repentance. And so starting in verse 1 of chapter 15, this is what Luke writes. He says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now here in the first two sentences, first two verses, notice that it says all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, and that this made the Pharisees and scribes upset. This is kind of a common occurrence we see. But I think oftentimes when we come to a place like this in Scripture, we tend to focus on the Pharisees who are grumbling instead of the sinners who are coming. The sinners who are coming to Jesus. And I want you to think about that for a second. I want you, I want you to let that sit in. Okay? The sinners of that day. The broken the outcast, the ostracized, the marginalized, the socially, the sexually deviant and broken, they're flocking to Jesus. They're flocking to him. And that's pretty amazing because I imagine if you go out to lunch today and you just bump into somebody on the street and you say, hey, was Jesus a friend of sinners? I think the response you're going to get, especially if that person's not a believer, is they're going to say, absolutely not. No way. You mean the Christ that's in Christian? No. They're all about judgment. But the reality is that Jesus is not only the sin bearer. He was a sinner magnet. He was a sinner magnet. People flocked him, especially those who existed outside of the religious establishment and those who were desperate and broken. And I want to be clear. They did not flock to him because he was soft on sin. They did not flock to him because Jesus was going to say, hey, whatever you're doing, it's fine. I love you. You know, it's all good. You do what you do. I do me. We're good. That's not why they flocked to Jesus. They flocked him because he looked in their eyes. They flocked him because he cared and that he had the words of life. And he offered forgiveness for their past and hope for the future. And so they came to him. And as I read this this week, it got me thinking, do sinners ever come to me? Do they ever come to me? Do they ever gather around me? And look, when I use the word sinner here, we understand we're all sinners. I'm using it like Luke does. He's speaking about those who are outside the faith. He's speaking about those that are living in opposition to God's moral law. Do those people ever gather or come to you? And if not, why not? Is it really because you're too holy? You know, just there's just a light shining off of you? Why don't they? Why don't they come? Is your life just not that attractive? And then if they do come, why? Why do they come? And what do they see and what do they hear when they do come? You know, one of my favorite things about being a a pastor here at Wayside is when I hear or see when I hear stories about waysiders 
living for Christ out in the marketplace, out in public, and, and that non-believers are drawn to them. And I'll be out and about, and I'll meet somebody, and we'll strike up a conversation. I'll, where are you from? What do you do? Blah, blah, blah. And they have a connection with somebody at Wayside. And I'll say, well, do you know this person? And they lie, and they say, yes. I love that person. This is a non-believer. I love that person. Man, they are the, they are the biggest blessing at our company. Or that's the person everybody looks to. I mean, that, that thrills me because that means we are being the church. And just this past week, I, I received an email from Tim Barton, somebody who's a part of our church. And, and earlier this summer, Tim invited me to go speak out at his uh, firm, the, the company that he works at with a bunch of engineers. And he says, hey, I want you to come and teach on the doctrine of Trinity to this Bible study we have. And I was like, Trinity engineers, let's do this. Let's make this happen. And so I, I go out there, and I'm part, you know, I speak, and I start talking to some of the guys. And it was incredible hearing all the stories about how this Bible study had impacted men that are part of that company and how men in that Bible study had impacted men outside the company or who were not in the Bible study. And how numbers of guys had come to faith. Marriages had been saved. Affairs had been stopped through this group of men in an engineering firm. And, and, and Tim told me about this guy named Eddie, who just a couple of weeks ago was broken and in a hard place. And, we, and he shared and he spent time with him. And this guy received Christ and was baptized. That's, that's meeting people where they're at and being a friend to sinners with the hope of Christ. The week before last, I went down to Goodwill with, um, to see a waysider named Kevin Bergner, General Bergner. And, and, and General, after a distinguished career in the Army, General Bergner now uh, leads Goodwill here in San Antonio. And so he's, he's at a place where he is taking those folks who have been cast off by society. And instead of offering them a handout, he's giving them, they're, they're offering them a hand up. Through the dignity of work. And so they come along these folks out of prison or out of rehab or just uh, in a hard place in life. And they train them to reach and help them reach their God-given potential. And I walked with General Bergner around the property. And here's the thing. They all knew who he was, but he knew them. He knew their names. He knew their stories. And, And they lit up when they see him. And it wasn't just, oh, the boss is here, look straight, okay, smile. I mean, there was genuine connection. And this is a guy who spent part of his career briefing the president in the Oval Office. And he's with a woman who's out of prison trying to make something of her life, giving her the same attention, the same dignity, the same respect that he gave the president of the United States. That's what I'm talking about. That's being a friend to those in need. That's coming around people with the hope of Christ. Just this Tuesday night, our women's ministry gathered here for an outreach event with two local ministries we're connected to. One is Teen Moms Together. And this is a ministry that comes alongside teen moms and and cares for them and ministers to them and their children. Says, you are valuable to us. And the other ministry was a ministry called Lavish. And Lavish is a ministry that, that, that focuses on providing outreach and aftercare for women in the local sex industry. 
And when you hear teen pregnancy and, and women involved in the local sex industry, these are things that people typically don't associate with the local church, right? But these are people we're called to reach. These are people who are flocking to Jesus. These are the people we have to meet with the hope of Christ. And, and I'm thrilled that it's going on here. I'm thrilled. Because it is a great reminder to us that the church does not exist to polish one another's morality. It's not why we're here. We're not here that you say yes, sir, and no, sir. And yes, please, thank you. We are here because we're charged with a mission to call dead people to life. That's why we exist. Not to polish their morality. We call the dead to life through the power of Christ to the glory of God. And it's an amazing privilege. And people are doing it right here. And I want you to be encouraged. And I want you to keep going. I see Lois Griffith over there who, who ministers to refugees at Wurzbach Manor on a weekly basis. She and Patty Dyer. I think of Belinda McCarthy who was here in the first service which, that's in the prisons every week teaching the gospel to inmates. Friends, this is what we're called to do. This is stuff that's not going on within the four walls of the church. This is the church taking the mission of the gospel outside the four walls and talking to people about the hope of Christ. And we want to train you, equip you, help you. We're even going to have a, a conference here in October. Maybe it's October 6th. We're going to host a conference of, on workplace evangelism to help you grow in your ability to reach out to your coworkers. Now, if you live for Christ, is everyone just going to love you and want to be around you, even the broken, marginalized? Are they going to say, you know what, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Where do I start? Where do I sign up? Of course not. Of course not. When you live for Christ, you will see, like, in, in a real way, like, when you are just living in the will of God, there's two things I can almost guarantee are going to happen. One is you're going to repulse people. I mean, Seriously. There's going to be some who will be repulsed by you. But number two is you're going to attract some people by the power of the Spirit. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. And that shouldn't surprise us because that's what happened to Jesus, right? Did everyone love Jesus? No. Some hung on every word because they knew that he had the word of life. And others hung on every word because they wanted to find a way to send him to his death. That's just, that was the way it was from the beginning. And it shouldn't surprise us if we repulse some, but others are drawn. We can't forget that the unrighteous, the irreligious, and the outcast flocked to Jesus in his day. And do they come to us? And when they do, what do they see and what do they hear? What do they see and what do they hear? And so while sinners were, were flocking to Jesus, the text tells us that the Pharisees were not impressed by this development. Right? They're not impressed. Because they see this as tainting Jesus. Right? He has been dirtied by these people. And by associating with them, it's guilt by association. And he's toxic. He's toxic. And it's to this attitude of the Pharisees that Jesus responds with these three parables, starting in verse 4. He says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep 
and has lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So within a crowd like this, it's, it's likely there were some shepherds there. And if not, people there would be aware of the profession of shepherding because it was common in that day. And 100 sheep is a middle class, that's a middle class operation. And the job of the shepherd is to not lose the what? The sheep. So each night they're counting those bad boys, which would have been a total nightmare, right? But he's counting the sheep and he recognizes, I've got 99. One's missing. And look, the, the, they are not lost in some forest here. The Greek word speaks of an open pasture. So the, the sheep's not lost because he just got confused. The sheep wandered foolishly away from the shepherd. And the shepherd finds out, goes out to find the missing sheep. And when he does, what does he do? Does he kick it? Does he slap it? Does he yell at it? Is that's going to do any good? That's probably what some of us would do, right? No way. No way. He bends down and he picks that sheep up and he puts it on his shoulders. And here's the deal. Here's, here's the thing that I think we miss sometimes. He does it joyfully. Isn't that amazing? He's not going, stinking sheep did it again. <laughs> I'll take them because I'm going to do my job. Right? No, he, he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing. Because that which was lost has been found. And it's beautiful. And I, and I just love this story because it's a, it's a great picture of God's heart towards the redeemed sinner. And it's also a beautiful illustration, I think, of salvation. A salvation where Christ is pictured as the good shepherd. Because I think if I were to ask you, hey, how did you come to faith in Christ? How did you come to believe? I think the response by most people is they would tell a story. Well, this person shared the faith with me, and they were my friend in high school. Or my parents were believers, and they taught us this. Or I went to church one day, and I heard this. Or I went to summer camp, and I experienced this and heard this. And those are great. I think those are blessings to God. And if you were to ask me, I would say, Dan Jessup, 98, Luke 15, prodigal son, frontier ranch, boom. God got a hold of me, right? But sometimes, because that's our perspective, I think we have this misconception that our salvation is a result of our seeking after God. Like as if God were hiding as if God's like behind a bush and we're like, oh, there's God. Got you. You got to save me now. I'm in. I found you. I mean, are you kidding me? See, Romans 3 tells us something pretty different. Romans 3 says there's no one righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Who seeks for God? No one. Who looks for God? No one. You may be familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, right? 
so that no one may boast. Well, what does the beginning of Ephesians 2 say? Right before that text. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Verse 4, But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul says this, and this is believers. He says, you were dead. You were a spiritual corpse. And then God supernaturally breathed life into you. You know, one of the the questions I wrestle with the most as a pastor, and I'm sure you do, because we all wrestle with this, is why did I come to believe in this gospel? But those, some of that I love, do not. I mean, I, I haven't fought in war, but I would imagine it'd be a little bit like survivor's guilt. Like, why me and not my friend? And I'll be completely transparent with you. I do not know. I, I do not have the answer to that. There's certainly mystery there. But here's what, what I think I do know. Here's what I do believe. What I do believe is that my faith in Christ is not the result of me just being that much smarter than everyone else. Now, a few people in the 915 said amen, and that was a little bit, <laughs> a little bit offended. But, I mean, I'm glad nobody in here did. Obviously, y'all really know me, you know. I, mean, I think, let's be honest, right? Let's just, let's, just, let's just be honest. Some of the smartest people I know love the Lord. There's no doubt. Some of them are in this, in this room right now. And some of the smartest people I know do not love the Lord. I, I just don't think it's a matter of intellect. It's not saying Christianity is unintellectual. It's just saying I don't think that faith in Christ is just a matter of intellect. For every Augustine, there's a... Christopher Hitchens. For every Aquinas, there's a Stephen Hawking. For every C.S. Lewis, there's a David Hume. You name it. It's not just a matter of intellect. And so if it's not intellect, well, maybe it's, maybe it's morality. I mean, let's be honest. We're pretty good, right? I mean, maybe our moral compass is just a little bit more in tune than the average bear, than our neighbor. Do we really believe that? You really believe that? Do you believe you came to faith in Christ because you're just that good? I know plenty of agnostics and atheists who live upstanding moral lives. And I know plenty of Christians who wrestle and battle the flesh. And they're real believers. And, and the world beats them up a little bit. I mean, that's a real thing. And so the question becomes, well, if it's not morality or intellect that leads me to faith in Christ, then what is it? And I submit to you that I think is the mysterious, incredible grace of God. Grace of God. A grace that, that draws me in by the power of the Spirit. A grace that removes my sin through the person 
life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who left the 99 to come after his wayward sheep like me and placed me on his shoulders and brought me home rejoicing, great rejoicing, because that which was once lost is now found, and the sheep is back where he belongs, which is with the shepherd. And here's the deal. The wayward sheep, think of your story. The wayward sheep did nothing but get on the shoulders of the shepherd. I mean, what's there to brag about? It just got on the, sh- the shoulders of the shepherd. And, and, and you may disagree, but I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that when we say Jesus is Lord, we don't say it by the power of our intellect or the purity of our morality. We say it because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that has opened our eyes to the person of Christ, restoring us to God the Father now and forevermore, and it is by grace from beginning to end. And our response to this grace of God is infinite humility, and our response to the grace of this God is infinite gratitude because I didn't deserve it. I don't, I don't know about you, but I was pretty enraptured by the story this summer of the Thai soccer team that got trapped in the, in the cave. So they go wandering in the cave and things happen and they end up two and a half miles deep in this cave, right? I mean, it's just incredible. And, and if you followed the story, you maybe know that when they located the, the, the kids, they're like, how are we going to get them out? And originally the plan was we're going to send some expert divers in there and they're going to teach these kids how to scuba out. I mean, like what? That's the best we got? Most of the kids could not even swim. And so when push came to shove, what ended up happening is they went in there and instead of having the boys swim out, they gave the kids full face mask. They partially sedated them. They put them on stretchers. And then the expert divers led them nine hours, those two and a half miles out of the cave. Just a remarkable story. And, and, and I want you to think for a second, I just want you to imagine we have one of the Thai kids right here, right? He's joined us for a special Sunday. And you know that they got out But maybe you don't know all the details of how they got out. And so we look at him and we say, young man, I mean, like, how did you think of this, like, amazing plan to get out of the cave? Great job. And he says, if he has any wits about him, he'll say, "Uh, I didn't think of anything. I was alone, scared, dying, afraid. I had no idea what to do. Now, he would say that in Thai, but work with me, right? Just, <laughs> let's just want to, I'm going to make this real, right? Okay, so you say, you're right, you're right. Yeah, it would be hard to think, pressure, yeah, no doubt. But, man, how did you just find the physical strength to swim those two and a half miles? I mean, did you just grit your teeth and say, I ain't going out like that? And the kid looks at you and he's like, yeah, I, I, I don't. I can't even swim. So then you say, well, well, how did you get out? And he says, I was rescued. I was rescued. 
I didn't do anything. I didn't contribute anything. All I did, all I gave, all I had was a willingness to get on the stretcher. Knowing that's my only way out. And then I trusted in that expert diver that they were trained and equipped for a moment like this and that he could take me home. And friends, that is a beautiful picture of the gospel. We are born in a cave called life, and we enter that cave through sin, but we're not two miles in, we're 200 miles in, and our only hope is a rescuer who is equipped and trained for a moment such as this, like a God-man who can take my sin and remove it from the east to the west. And we don't deserve to be rescued. I didn't think of the rescue. I don't contribute to the rescue. I just get on the stretcher, believing that this one can take me home. That's it. And I praise him the entire way. And much like the scene in Thailand when they left that cave and everybody was going crazy, the Bible tells us that when a sinner comes home, and when that shepherd arrives with the sheep on his back, that the heavens on down are in applause for what has just transpired. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You see, when you think of the Pharisees, what's the problem at the, at the end of the day with the Pharisees? It's not that they want to be moral. I mean, that's fine. It's fine. It's not that they want to be religious. Okay. It's that they didn't think they needed saving. Do you see that? At least not the way that God had designed it. And so their response is, I don't need your stretcher. Just give me some fins and I'll be fine. That's the problem with them. And that's why in verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. And the irony here is obviously that there's no one who is righteous. No one's righteous. It's tongue in cheek. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there are moral people, but that is so different than the righteousness of God. And this is why there's no joy in the heavenly realms over a great moralist. But there's infinite joy in the heavenly realms over a sinner who repents, recognizes their need for Christ, and places their trust in him. Because where there is restoration, there is rejoicing. Where there is restoration, there is rejoicing. And in case we didn't get, in case he didn't make that clear enough, Jesus repeats himself in verses 8 through 10. He says, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so in the previous parable, there's kind of a middle-class shepherd who goes after his lost sheep. And then here in this parable, there's a poor woman who searches for her lost coin. And the coin's worth about a day's wage, which means that at the end of the day, it's not that valuable. It's not that valuable. 
but it's valuable to her. It's valuable to her. And so she looks for it. And, and I think oftentimes in the course of our lives, whether we admit it or not, and I know it's true because I talk to people, and I talk to, to people in this room, and, and what happens is we look in the mirror and we, we come to this con- conclusion that really we're just like the common coin. Like, I'm not that valuable. I'm not that unique. I mean, let's just be honest. I'm one of seven billion. If I go away tomorrow, nobody will care. You get over me in a week. I just don't matter that much. And that's what we tell ourselves. And yet this parable, Jesus is clearly communicating, yes, you do. You do matter. You matter because you're mine. You get that? You're mine. I created you in my image. I redeemed you by my blood. I'm telling you right now you're valuable. We are not just common coins. We're not just common coins. I love the the quote by Pastor Tim Keller. Keller writes that the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Like there are two realities that can be true. I am a broken, lost, wayward sheep. And I am a redeemed, loved, valuable child of God. They're both true. Period. We fly both those flags. And that teaches us and reminds us of the grace of God. And it also teaches us who we are as those who are in Christ. Incredibly valuable to God because we belong to Him. I'll close with um, a story. A few years back, um, when Elijah was about three, my oldest son, he had this propensity to take my wife Victoria's rings. Oh, yeah. And so one day we come home, and Victoria's wedding ring is missing. And I go up to Elijah, and I say, Elijah, did you take mommy's ring? And Elijah looks at me. He's got a little smile, and he goes, Yes. <laughs> and then I said, Elijah, where did you take mommy's ring? And you know where he took it. He walks me to the bathroom. And he points at the toilet. And he looks up at me and he goes, mommy, ring. <laughs> and when he said mommy, ring, he made daddy cry, right? <laughs> and... uh this is not a good deal for us, right? I mean, Victoria quit her job. I'm in ministry. I mean, I could basically, I mean, the replacement was going to be like a weed from the yard that I wrap around, <laughs> like Braveheart style, you know? And uh, so a couple weeks go by, and I'm in Elijah's room, and we're kind of playing together. And he has this little bag that I brought him from when I went to Guatemala. And he reaches in the bag, and he pulls out Victoria's pearl ring, which was missing as well. And I just say, give me the bag, give me, give me the bag. So I got the bag, and I'm just like praying, you know, 
I turn it over, and out comes Victoria's wedding ring. And I'm just like shaking, you know. And so I get that ring, and I go into the living room, and Victoria's on the couch. True story, true story. And I get on my knee, and I say, Victoria Loudermilk, will you still marry me? (laughs) She goes nuts, you know. I mean, she just jumps out of her chair. She's yelling. We're hugging. I mean, there was more celebration then than when we actually got engaged, <laughs> which is a good thing, right? Trajectory is the right direction. But man, why, was it, why was the celebration better? I mean, why were we so happy? Because that which was lost had been found. And here's the deal. It wasn't just any ring we found. It was our ring. If I had found your ring, I would have been like, eh. <laughs> Depending how nice it is, obviously, right? <laughs> but your ring doesn't matter to me as much as our ring. And so there's great celebration when that which is lost is found, and we belong to him, and he rejoices when we are reconciled to him. And if you want to know what makes God rejoice, what brings the angels and the heavens to their feet, it is when a lost sinner is reunited with a glorious, their glorious Savior. And this is the ministry of reconciliation. This is the mission of God and becomes the mission of the church. To seek the lost until they're found. And then to teach and train others to do the same. So I I implore you, church, live your life with godly integrity. Love people with a supernatural intentionality. And they will, somebody will at some point look to you with great expectancy. And when they do, you tell them about the Savior. You tell them about Jesus. You tell them about the good shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. And you might just get to rejoice with the angels and God himself because someone who was lost has been found. Let's pray. Just you're aware EAS is here. There's fire trucks dealing with a potential stroke or other health situation. Um, So just be aware of that Um, and be in prayer. It's been kind of one of those crazy, crazy days. So let's take some time and pray for these individuals who have um, had a serious physical issue today. And um, and just be aware as you leave, just kind of walk walk around, work around the, the first response people who are here. Okay, so let's pray for them. We're going to stand and sing, and and you guys have a great Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Lord, we thank you for your amazing, infinite, incomparable, never-ending, just your grace, a grace that came after us. And the, the, the Scriptures teach us that the only way we can say Jesus is Lord is through the Spirit that lives in us. And so we thank you, God. We thank you, Father, 
For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Oh, Father, we praise you for sending the Son, our Lord Jesus. And we worship you, Jesus, God the Son, who is uniquely trained and equipped for a moment like this in the incarnation, who lived a perfect life before he died for sin on the cross, defeating death three days later. We worship you, Son, and we worship you, Spirit, who opens our eyes to the beauty of the Son, to the glory of the Father, and indwells us now and forevermore. And God, I pray if there's anybody in here who's been running from you and they've never taken that step where they have turned from their life, they have turned from the way they think they get home to you, and they would receive this gift. You're the good shepherd. And we as your sheep, Lord, would you send us out to be shepherds as well and to call the lost home with the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.